Let's uh, direct our attention to uh, a passage from uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, and I will begin reading at verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 19 and uh, proceeding through the end of the chapter. Listen now as God speaks to us this morning. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you give us many and good gifts. And one of those is that you have given your word to us. And we pray, Father in heaven, as the giver of that word, that you will also be the one who superintends it so that it will accomplish its purpose in our lives this day. So guide us in our study and enable us, O Lord God in heaven, to use your word in a way which honors you, our great triune God. And we make our plea to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine that uh, most of us, at some time or another, have uh, received a birth birth, uh, uh, announcement. And as a matter of fact, I suspect that a number of you have probably, at some time or other, sent out birth announcements. And uh, you know what birth announcements look like. Uh, Contemporary ones have a nice little picture of the baby. Uh, They have bright colors, often emphasizing either pink or blue. And frequently, they give us the vital statistics of, uh, of the baby, when the baby was born, how much the baby weighed, how long the baby was, and with a note oftentimes saying, mother and child are doing well. 
Now, we see those kind of birth, birth notes, birth announcements. Uh, in the text that I read to you, uh, there is a record of a birth announcement, and this birth announcement is different uh, uh, from any other that we have ever seen. Now, first of all, the birth announcement comes before uh, the baby are born. Uh, and the announcement is directed at, to the mother rather than to friends and family. So let's look at this incident of the, uh, that contains the birth announcement and let's try to keep it in our minds by using a simple ABC uh, outline, if you will. Uh, look first of all at certain anticipatory events, look then at the birth announcements, and then look at confirmation of what the birth announcements tell us. Uh, this section that I read to you uh, uh, begins a new part of the book of Genesis, and it follows its, uh, the book of Genesis' ordinary way of, of dividing up sections, if you will, because it starts uh, with the words, uh, these are the generations. And uh, in this uh, time, uh, uh, we look at, uh, at, at, at the generations of Isaac. Now, as a matter of fact, the generations of Isaac, as we'll see as we go through this, mostly have to do with his son Jacob, but they are the generations, that is, the descendants that come and follow. For those of you with very good memories, uh, you may recall that three years ago, uh, I was preaching on Genesis and we had completed with the death of, of Abraham. And so this morning, we start up again three years later on the stories in Genesis. So most of them will occur on Sunday evenings as we look at them. Uh, now, now when, when Moses, who wrote this, uh, tells us about these generations of Isaac, he points out that Isaac is the son of Abraham, which is a bit odd in the uh, way in which these, uh, this is the generations unfold. But, but Moses does this in order to call a, our attention uh, to the promises that, that God made to Abraham, very important kinds of promises, because those promises are still in play. They're still at work, uh, both in the life of Abraham, but in particular in the life of Isaac and his descendants. In other words, the, the covenant relationship that God had established with Abraham, where he told Abraham, I will be your God and, your, and to you and to your children after you. That, that promise is still at play in the life of Isaac and of his uh, uh, descendants. Uh, equally so, uh, the, the promise that God gave to Abraham that his progeny, that his descendants would uh, inherit the land of Canaan, but even more importantly in this text, uh, that he would have descendants and they would be as great as the number of the sands in the sea or as great as the number of the stars in the heaven. Now, um, and, and Isaac knows that he is the one through whom all of these promises are to come to fulfillment. And so, so Moses points out to us, he's the son of Abraham, and he also points us to us, what? That Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is barren. We see this. And, and Isaac knew that these promises were to be fulfilled through him. And so what is Isaac to do in this situation? God makes promises. Lots of kids, lots of grandkids, lots of great-great-grandkids. My wife... <laughs> can't have children. She's barren. 
Uh, what is uh, uh, Isaac to do in this kind of a situation? And, and the situation of Isaac and Rebekah repeats almost exactly the situation that Abraham and Sarah found themselves in. If you go back to our first introduction to Sarah, for example, in Genesis chapter 11, in verse 30 we read about Sarah, she was barren, she had no children. But those of you with good memories, you will remember how Abraham and Sarah handled the problem that they had of Sarah's barrenness. And we will see a contrast, if you will, with the way in which Isaac handles the problem of, of Rebekah's uh, barrenness. Abraham, uh, first of all, looked to a member of his family, if you will recall, and he thought of Eliezer, a member of his household staff, the senior member of his household staff, that he would be uh, the uh, um, uh, heir of, of, of Abraham. And in Genesis 15, uh, God indicates that this is not going to be the case. So what do Abraham and Sarah do? They plot together and they make this judgment that uh, Sarah will give her servant Hagar to Abraham and uh, Abraham then can have a child with uh, Hagar and that actually comes about and a child is born with Ishmael. And you know what happened? It was a devastating mess. Just a complete mess. And so Abraham and Sarah wait, and they wait until Sarah is way past the time of bearing children. When you get to be 90, you don't expect to get pregnant. And Sarah gets pregnant. God does send a child, and Isaac is born. And Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one in whom all of these uh, promises that were given to Abraham would come to be fulfilled. Now, how do we see Isaac in contrast to that background story? And Moses points out for us in verse 21. He says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I don't think you can help be struck by the contrast. And it's my contention that when Moses put this story together for us, when he wrote it down, that he wrote it down full well noticing the contrast. And I suspect full well expecting that those who looked at this, who knew about the story of Abraham, would also be struck by the difference. Machinations to try to make sure that God's promise comes true. Lord, give me a child that your promises may come true. You see the contrast. The contrast is so very clear there. And, and surely this reflects in Isaac a kind of, of confidence in God's uh, promises and also an awareness that it was the Lord who gave children. He was the one who fulfilled his promises and in particular uh, this kind of a promise. But we not only see a contrast uh, with regard to uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac, if you will, we also see something different with regard to, to Rebekah as well. And Rebecca's pregnancy turns out not to be an easy one. She can't figure out what's going on in her body. And uh, so she, she, she says, why is this happening to me, basically? What's going on here? And, and uh, so and the text tells us a little bit of what's going on. Now, the, the text actually translates and says that, uh, that, uh, that the twins in her body uh, struggled. Now, we could almost... Uh, uh, um, translate that, that as uh, they uh, smashed one another or they, they crushed one another. 
This is not a child flexing a newly gained limb. This is a picture of a battle. And that picture of a battle is very much at the point here. It's not something that's accidental. This is something that we need to pay attention to. This is odd. And, and Rebecca knows this kind of going on in her body is odd. And so since she can't figure out what's happening to her, she decides to ask God, why is this happening to me? And in her perplexity, she turns to Yahweh and she inquires of him for an answer. And again, note the difference. Note the difference between Rebecca's response and that response of Sarah's. Anybody remember the response of Sarah when the angel told her that she was going to have a baby? <laughs> she laughed. Rebecca goes to God and says, why is this happening to me? And in response, God's response to Rebecca's inquiry is with what I call a birth announcement. Uh, it's both an uh, answer to Rebecca's uh, difficulty and also a prediction about the two twins that she carries in, the twins that she carries in her womb. And, and certainly, uh, Rebecca had to be encouraged by the way in which God seems to, the text seems to tell us that, that she asked and God responded. He told her what was going on, the way in which that, that worked out with her. In a sense, her faith in God was, was confirmed and affirmed. Now, Yahweh tells her that there are two nations in her womb. And at first, uh, we, we may assume that, that he's just saying, well, you got twins. I think there's much more in this story than simply informing a woman who can't figure out why all these things are happening in her, uh, that, that's twins. It seems to me there's much more. It also tells us about the future of the two sons, and not only the future of the two sons, but the future of all the descendants that are going to come from those two sons. Uh, in a sense, all those things that are tied up in the promises to Abraham that are going to be carried out then uh, through the life of Isaac are now telegraphed, if you will, or announced if you will, uh, in the birth announcement. That's what we see here. And, and, and the birth announcement tells us that they will be divided. Uh, uh, the oracle comes uh, to tell Rebecca that these two nations will, will somehow be separated. And this is the first hint of the continuing struggle that will go, through, go on between the descendants of, of Isaac and, uh, and, uh, and the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. This is something that was telegraphed, if you will, prenatally. Now it's announced uh, uh, pointedly by the Lord. And as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, uh, the nations uh, originating in Rebekah's womb uh, will be in a, in a constant struggle. In some ways, uh, the people of, uh, come from Esau, who are called Edomites, become the picture of the enemies of the Israelites. If you go through the Old Testament, you keep seeing the way in which this conflict between uh, Israel and Edom comes about. And uh, they, they become the stereotypical enemy, if you will, of the Israelites. So this, this battle that's going on, this, this struggle within uh, Rebekah's womb, uh, points forward to what's going on there. The division predicted here will be the defining characteristic of these two nations and their heritage. Uh, the second part of this uh, oracle gives us another 
element or another aspect, if you will, uh, of, of what's going to happen uh, with these two nations, a kind of prediction about them. Uh, we're first of all told that one will be stronger than the other. And again, our first reaction may be, yeah, one baby's going to be a little bit stronger than the other. Big deal, you know, so what? Uh, kind of thing. But, but the text has more to that. Not only will one be stronger than the other, but God is going to overturn the ordinary way in which brothers relate to one another. Uh, the, the idea of birthright that the, is, is going to be taken away. The, 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 the announcement says the younger will be the stronger and that the older will see or serve the younger. In a sense, God is turning everything upside down. We'll, we'll come back to look at that, the oddity of it, and the strangeness of the way in which this is going to unfold. This is not the way things were supposed to be. God is intervening and he is changing things around here. Now, uh, at the birth of the boys, we also see other strange things happening. One of them is the way in which the, in which the, the, the boys are, 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 dis- are described for us. Uh, I take it that the language used to describe Esau is not designed to be complementary kind of language. Now, I agree with those uh, commentators who see uh, the color red, playing a prominent point here, as, as pointing to a certain kind of wildness. And the added description that he was hairy all over points to something almost animalistic. Uh, Ross, in his comments on this, says that the words describe one who is more like an animal of the field than an ordinary baby. Uh, We have no description, though, of of Jacob. We don't know what he looked like. But we do have something about Jacob. Uh, uh, We have here something that came about in his delivery. And he was holding on uh, to the heel of his brother. Now, I've never been in a hospital delivery room. But my understanding is this kind of behavior when twins are born of one holding, under, holding on to the other is, is rarely, if ever, heard of. I can't judge the validity of that, but the text does point it out to us to get our attention, to, to grab our attention. And part of that's carried over in the naming of the boys that, that reflects elements of their birth. The name Esau uh, sounds similar to the Hebrew word for hairy. And we'll see that come out as we see about Esau as things go on. Uh, Jacob's uh, name sounds like uh, two different kinds of Hebrew words. Uh, One, it sounds a little bit like the language that says, may God protect. Uh, But it also can sound like uh, take uh, take by the heel, that that kind of thing. So it sounds like those two different things. And, And my judgment is that the parents chose this because of the double meaning of may God protect or takes by the heel. I can't imagine, though, that what we find about uh, the way in which Jacob's name is used later on, for example, the way in which uh, Esau uses it in chapter 27, where Jacob steals the blessing, uh, that he's cheater and deceiver. I just can't imagine that uh, uh, Isaac and Rebekah said, we'll name our son cheater and deceiver. It just blows the mind to think that that would be the case. But they did have this double notion of may God protect and uh, takes the heel. And so we move on now from this birth announcement to the confirmation that comes to us. And, and the prediction found in the birth announcement is followed by a portrayal of, a, of an incident that, uh, that confirms all that the oracle predicted. Uh, we're not told anything about the age of the twins, nor is there any 
point in the story were how they related to one another. They're born, and now we see this incident of uh, uh, Jacob making some stew. Uh, what we are shown is an incident that will have a far-reaching effect on, on the historical development of these two nations. And as I read this uh, narrative, one of the things that strikes me is that Esau comes in from the field, we assume he's been out hunting, and he's starving, and he has no food. Uh, back a few verses before this, how was Esau described? As a skillful hunter. Why did his father love him? Because he was always getting game for him, and he liked the taste of it. So, so as I look at this text, I see again Esau coming across as one uh, who's not being complimented, if you want to say that. He's, he's a little lesser kind of person in the way in which the text describes it. Uh, he's not the great hunter that was here. Uh, we see the anomaly, I suspect. A skillful hunter is hungry for food, and he fails to come with any food uh, that would feed him. Uh, and we see something about uh, uh, Esau's values as, as the story goes ahead. And fundamentally, it seems that the text is presenting Esau with these values for that which is immediate. Uh, whether he was about to die, we can't be sure. My judgment is this is probably an exaggeration. There's no evidence that uh, Esau comes in as the movie tells us, you know, <laughs> You know, uh, give me food, give me something to drink, I'm dying. Uh, he comes and says, I want to eat some of that red stuff. That's a better translation, perhaps, of what he asks for. So it's probably a kind of exaggeration exaggeration, but we would describe Esau as one who lives in the moment and takes little or no thought of uh, the consequences of his desires or of his actions. The text also simply tells us that Jacob was cooking stew. We, we, we have no way of knowing if he ordinarily cooked food there. We, we just don't know that. And where was this happening? Um, I, I, it doesn't tell us where it was happening. You know, was it happening where all the tents of all the rest of the people were gathered there? Doesn't tell us that. My suspicion is it was someplace other. Because if it was where there were tents and other people were dwelling, surely there would have been food there for Esau to, uh, to have to eat. Um, and so we have no, no hint about this. And, but I see this all as more than simple happenstance. Uh, the whole narrative, in my judgment, communicates uh, a certain deviousness on the part of Jacob. And uh, uh, my judgment is it's best to call it uh, Jacob's plot uh, to get the birthright. Uh, and, and we should also note that, that, that there's nothing in the text that tells us that Jacob is moved at all by any compassion for his twin who claims to be dying of starvation. You know, uh, uh, Esau says, give me some of that red stuff, you know. And Jacob says, no, I want your birthright. You see the, the, the tension between the two of them as, as we look at this story. So, so, so Jacob not only gets uh, Esau to, to promise to give him the birthright, but before he will give him any food, what does he say? Swear to me. You take an oath, an oath before God, that, that only after this oath will I have the birthright. Now, the way in which this unfolds, there is some evidence that, that this actually goes on in other parts of the world around about, that the selling of a birthright by the firstborn is something that is known in other documents uh, from the ancient world about this time. 
So it's not an oddity uh, that we find here. So uh, my inclination as we, as we look at this text is again to make the judgment of, of, uh, uh, of, of Jacob being a bit of a difficult kind of a person, not an admirable either. Um, uh, the resolution, though, of the plot uh, comes to us in rather simple terms. I mean, Jacob gives Esau some uh, stew, lentil stew, we find, and uh, some bread. Uh, Esau eats what he originally called the red stuff. He eats the bread, and he's just gone. He leaves. Uh, and, and if you're like I am, you wonder about the motives of, of the two brothers. Uh, was Esau simply some lout who was who lived for his belly and cared little about important things? I judge that you could, might come to that conclusion. He comes off this way uh, in this description here. Uh, when we get to Genesis chapter 27 and the stealing of the blessing, we find Esau just a little bit more serious. Uh, he, he laments not getting the blessing at that point and and my judgment is uh, he's young and foolish in the text we see here in 25. He's a little bit mature, more mature, and understands things a little bit better. And, and with Jacob, we have other difficulties. Uh, was uh, Jacob driven by the benefits that come from the birthright? You know, he would get it all, and Esau would get none, because the oldest got twice as much as the younger. I mean, there's only two. One gets it all, the other gets none of it. Uh, is that what drove uh, uh, Jacob? Was that what he was after uh, at this point? Um, uh, I, I tend to think that way. There are others, uh, on the other hand, who, who look at uh, Jacob in a much better light. They, they think that Jacob uh, shows uh, a desire for, uh, uh, to secure uh, God's promises and to see the value of those, uh, those promises. It's fascinating that the text gives us no hint whatsoever as to what motivates them. It leaves that as an open question as those early people who would have, have read this would come with the same dilemma that we have and with regard to this. And as I said before, it's my inclination that, that uh, Jacob is driven by, uh, by uh, the birthright, by the money by what he's going to get. And this sort of characterizes Jacob right up until we get to chapter 32 where his name is changed. He is clearly, in most of his ways, the deceiver. He's the cheater. Uh, that sort of looks at his, his history and then we get to chapter 32. Uh, it's clear, though, that in Moses, in writing this, he judges Esau as culpable. Uh, we're told at the end of the, of the story, Esau despised his birthright. And as Moses writes this, he has to know the benefits of the blessing that come from God. Uh, Moses writes this on the background of God's wonderful deliverance of his people from Egypt, the way in which God blessed. And for, for Esau then to just sell this, to have done this, uh, Moses adds this editorial comment, if you will, um, Esau despised his birthright. Um, now let's look at some applications of this. Uh, there are a number of uh, matters that we could consider and look at, uh, but for the sake of time, uh, we're not going to do so. Um, so let's just look at a few. And, and let's, let's dare not miss uh, the way in which the text highlights prayer and persistence in prayer. Uh, again, I take it that Moses desired for those who first read this to, to be impressed by, by Esau's 
I mean, by Isaac's commitment to prayer for, for God to give him these children. And it's not only that he prayed, but he prayed persistently. It's fascinating the way in which the text sort of pulls this to our attention. He's married at 40, and he gets children, two children, two sons at 60. 20 years. 20 years. He has those promises ringing in his ears. You know, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and as the sand by the sea. 20 years, he says, oh Lord, where are the descendants? Oh Lord, when will you fulfill the promise? And my suspicion is, brothers and sisters, we need to hear that. Not only to pray, not only to pray today, not only to pray tomorrow, but pray next Thursday, pray next year, pray next decade. Some of you know the need for persistent prayer. Some of you have seen the wonderful way in which God blesses persistent prayer. I know of people that I've prayed for for, for, for long periods of time, almost to the point where I've thought to say to God, this is useless. And just before I said, this is useless, an answer came to the prayer. Persistence in prayer is one thing that seems to me just sort of jumps out in the way in which this text is constructed. Another thing that we pick up from this text is the way in which the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, something that we've already looked at in our, prayer, our time of, of confession, but in, in Hebrews 12, as it encourages, as the writer encourages people to pursue holiness, uh, to, to seek after doing things that please God, not to, to be engaged, for example, in the root of bitterness and all that, that that entails, he uses Esau as a negative example. He says, don't be like Esau. Um, and, and I think we can fall into the trap of being like Esau, we call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves those who have had this wonderful blessing of the things that have come to us from God. Uh, particularly, we call, our Christians. That is, we call ourselves Christians. That is, we believe ourselves to be those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We live with the hope of heaven. That's who we are. And yet, we have that promise. We have that blessing. And we find it sort of inconvenient, if you will, to pursue holiness. We find all sorts of other things that are more attractive. We, we almost could look at ourselves and say, whoops, there's a little Esau in me. Give me some of that red stuff. Quickly, feed me, make me feel happy, make me feel good. But God is telling us in Hebrews 12, look at this story and remember, go after holiness. Go after being different, being separated from sin. So when we, we look at this story, one of the things it seems to me that the writer of Hebrews wants us to grab and he wants it to grab us as well is don't be like Esau. Don't give things away too quickly without thought to them. Um, when we go to look at the way in which the Apostle Paul deals with this in the ninth chapter of Romans, he uses this incident to support his doctrine of divine election. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul actually quotes in the ninth chapter from 
from the birth announcement. And then in verse 11, uh, uh, he points out that this happened, as he said, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, that God is choosing Jacob over against Esau. And uh, Paul's argument is that God chooses on the basis of his sovereign will. He continues by saying, not because of works, but because of his call. That is, God chose Jacob and not Esau. And it was not because Jacob was better. It was not because Jacob had done anything sexually good, because Paul says it's even before they were born that God chose Jacob and not Esau. Uh, and, and he tells us, Paul tells us the reason for that, and that is because God loved Jacob. Now, my suspicion is that some of you are sitting there, right as I tell those things, somebody has zipping into their mind, that's unfair. Somebody else says, how do I know? How do I know I'm a Jacob and not an Esau? How do I know that? How can I be sure of those kinds of ways? And my, my, my suggestion to you is, is to embrace what we find in another birth announcement in the scriptures. You go to the second chapter of Luke's gospel. In the 11th verse, we read there, for unto, uh, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you are convinced that you have failed to keep God's law, that you are a sinner and that you are a sinner that God judges to be worthy of his anger, to be worthy of his wrath, to be worthy of saying, yes, I will reject you, if you judge that that's the way you are, but you also judge that you can't do anything really to get rid of that sin, to take care of that sin that you know is in your life. And you cry out, the Savior that you promised, the Savior, that Christ, who was born in Bethlehem, when he died upon Calvary's cross, he was suffering there for the very punishment that I deserve. If you believe that, if you confess that, you're chosen. You're a part of the elect. That's the sign that God gives to you. The spirit working in you, convincing you that you have been saved by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus. That demonstrates to you that you're elect. And there may be some of you who are sitting there still saying, I wonder. And I plead with you. I plead with you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Claim him as your savior. And God will number you among those that he has loved. For those of us who are convinced that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus, who are sure that he did save us from all of our sins and that they have been taken away from us and we are renewed by the power of his spirit. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, we ask ourselves the question, how, how do we respond? How is it that we respond to these, these kind of things? And my take to you is pursue holiness. Pick up on what the writer of Hebrews says. 
If you are the elect, if you are those that God has loved, if you are those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, respond to that Jesus by pursuing holiness. Look at this world around you and say, I want to be different from this world, not like it. Look at this uh, world filled with sin and wrongdoing and say, Lord, lead me away from that. Look at this world who this day says, the greatest thing happening in Philadelphia is the Super Bowl and say, bourgeois. The greatest thing happening in Philadelphia today is that I get to worship. I get to praise. I get to declare for all the world. I belong to Jesus. And he belongs to me. If you're born again, if you're one of those that God has worked in you by his spirit, I plead with you. Don't despise your birthright. Let's pray. Lord our God, you're good. You are good beyond our imagination. And we thank you for that. And we thank you in particular for sending to us your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this day, because of what you have done for us, O oh Jesus, that we might pursue holiness, that we might love you, that we might love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And we pray this in your name, and we say together, amen.